Good morning. We are in our last week of our reset uh, series, our uh, our uh, final week to look at how do we change uh, deeply. And uh, this this week we're looking beginning at looking at at Paul's letter to the Ephesians in uh, chapter three and what he ex- he explains and and what he really gives us insight into is the fact that change often comes as we are experiencing suffering in our lives. And not only the suffering that we experience for ourselves, but often there is the suffering that happens to others. And how we react to that suffering in many ways is how deeply we go into changing, turning our hearts more and more towards God and so Ephesians chapter 3 is where Paul has been, he's been giving this incredible theological teaching about the, uh, the nature of God, the nature of salvation, all of this wonderful, wonderful stuff. And then suddenly he stops and he realizes that he has to teach on and he has to share with the people how to face hardship in their life. And his... His default setting or his belief is that if you follow Jesus, you're going to face hardship. And so he, in, in Ephesians 3, he says, so I ask you not to lose heart. So the idea of losing heart is there over, over what Paul himself was suffering. And he says, and I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you which is to your glory or is your glory. See, he, he is convinced that his suffering has meaning. He is convinced that his suffering has purpose and he does not want to waste his sorrows and he doesn't want them to waste theirs either. So Paul is certain that an abundant life, a flourishing life can be found and can be experienced even in the hardships that we face. But in teaching about facing these hardships, he's, he's asking us to go quite a bit deeper than just superficial faith. Now, I've been sharing with, with you uh, Mark Sayers, who talks a lot about human flourishing, and he says that you need three equal parts of freedom, of purpose or meaning, and community or relationships. So Paul is talking about how you can flourish in hardship. Well, Paul himself is a prisoner of Rome. How can can Paul flourish in such a situation? Well, one of the things that we can do is we can put this grid of freedom, meaning, or purpose, and community or relationship and see how Paul keeps equal parts of these even as he's not personally free. His personal freedom has been taken away. He's chained to a Roman guard. can go nowhere, he can do nothing without the presence of another human being chained to him. But what you see him doing is he does not lose his freedom. He, he's, he's lost some physical freedom, but he doesn't, he doesn't lose his freedom he chooses in to his situation. 
He chooses in the situation to turn to God as his refuge. He chooses to be free from bitterness, resentment, from a sense of demandingness. I don't deserve this. This is unfair. He chooses into the situation instead of being angry, bitter, and negative about the situation. It is a negative situation, but his reaction to it expresses an inner freedom, a self-determination that cannot be taken away, even by physical circumstances. But secondly, and probably most importantly, is that Paul, when he's explaining how he is flourishing even in impossible circumstances, he sees meaning in this. He sees glory. He sees weight. He sees beauty. He sees he sees the hand of God. Uh, yesterday I quoted John Newton. I quoted him a few times here. You know, everything that God sends, Newton said, is necessary. It's necessary for your change. It's necessary for your glory. It's necessary for your self-image. It's necessary for you to flourish. Everything he sends is necessary. And Paul chooses into this, and he sees meaning in this. Everything he withholds is not necessary, Newton says. Paul sees that too. Paul, Paul wanted to go to Rome. He, chose, he was desirous to go to Rome. He probably didn't think he would go as a prisoner. But instead of, instead of losing even a day of being a prisoner, he sees meaning and purpose. He sees glory and beauty. He sees what's coming. And, and if you think about it just for a minute, while Paul was incredibly successful at planting churches, at leading people to Christ in every town, in every city, whether it was among the, his Jewish kinsmen or it was with the Gentile Greeks and, and Romans, Paul was incredibly successful at re- raising up churches. Churches that had People of very different, diverse socioeconomic classes, different ethnicities. And yet, he can choose into this time of being a prisoner. And so we get the most wonderful letters, which form the majority of our New Testament, comes from Paul's imprisonment. He did not waste his sorrows. He did not waste He found meaning. He found purpose. And the third thing is, and we'll look at this more completely as we go on in Ephesians, he is inspired and he is source, his source of inspiration is God's view of the church. So let me just just summarize again or hit just a little bit more about God's grace here. See, Paul no longer sees himself under the the realm of performance and earning and meriting. He no longer sees himself as somebody who's under punishment or fear. So he can lean in and keep his freedom because he is is enabled by, but he's also enamored with the grace of God. In, in, in some ways, you see, if you stay in this place where I, I you know, I want what I deserve and Everything that happens to me is always so unfair and I never get fully what I deserve kind of thing. If you stay in that place, you will never ever be melted in your heart 
by the grace of God and, and the need to earn, the need to deserve, the need for everything to be fair according to your standards will actually trip you up. You may think it's actually a, a, a righteous thing to say this is right and this is wrong, this is fair, this is unfair. But if you stay in that place, in, in this world of injustice, in this world of disorder, this world of sin, the sinfully fallen world, then what's going to happen is you're not going to be free and you're not going to see meaning and purpose because you're going to see everything as unfair, undeserving. And so Paul, however, living in some ways in, in a life that is often unfair to him, being punished or suffering more than he ever deserved or merited, yet he lives in the wonder with a heart melted by God's grace. And he, he explains why this is so important to him. He says, this is the grace of God was a mystery that was hidden. And in the Greek, in Paul's day, a mystery was not something you solved. A mystery was something that you could not figure out for yourself. There was something that was so hidden. And what he's saying is the grace of God was hidden, but God has revealed it. And, and the revelation of God's grace just completely captivated the heart and the life of the Apostle Paul. And so here's, here's what Paul was so free to choose in, and he was so full of meaning, is, is the gospel. The gospel sets us free from sin and death, but it also sets us free from guilt and shame. You see, if you live in a world where it's punishment and judgment and fear and everything has to be right and everything has to be fair and deserved and undeserved, then you will also live in a world where you will have constant guilt and constant shame. Only in the realm of grace can guilt be truly taken away and shame really taken away. So Paul, you see, the call on his life, the call that made his life free, the call that made his life meaningful, was a call to proclaim the gospel of Christ. Now that same call, that same purpose and meaning for Paul's life also created the opportunity for him to experience incredible suffering. But you see, he lived in the deeper joy of the wonder of God's grace. This, for me, this has, been, this has been where this change project and where this lifetime change project has come home to me. See, I love, I, I, I love that whole uh, you know, command of Scripture, the, the, the call of God that says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And if you, you know anything about how Paul wrote that, he wrote that in a particular Greek tense where it's, it says, keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and this is one of those changed things that should be a part of every day for the rest of your life. Keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. But the idea there, and I guess for me, the idea that's captivated my heart, is that to be filled with the Holy Spirit is one that you live with an acute consciousness of the Spirit's presence, of the Spirit's guidance, of the Spirit's desires for you, the heartbeat of God that the Spirit is in your life. But number two, I, I, I've come to realize that sometimes we, we look at God, we look at 
at Jesus, we look at the Holy Spirit, and we just we, we want them to be serviceable to us. We want them to assist us in our agenda and our plans. And to be filled with the Holy Spirit is instead, instead to be melted by the love of God being shed in your heart by the Holy Spirit so that where He goes, you go. Where what He asks, you, you jump and say, yes. That we're not just talking when we, you know, when we fall short that we're defeated, but actually that we begin to realize that when we fall short, we have broken God's heart in a way. We've quenched the Holy Spirit. We've grieved the Holy Spirit. That this is a relationship. This is a relationship with the Almighty God in the Him and in our presence being the divine resident in the walls of our life. And so here's what Paul was looking at. He was looking at not, not just following a religion, not just trying to be moral, not just doing what is right, but being melted. His very heart being melted by the love of God. So that being filled with the Spirit was to be filled with love for God because you're filled with love from God. See, that's the mystery. That is the incredible mystery of grace. Now, Paul begins to really unpack even more this other, this other source of inspiration. And this one might surprise you, but yet it is clearly the teaching of the Holy Spirit about the church. Paul saw the church as, as brilliant, as beautiful, as glorious. This is that third element for human flourishing. It's connection to community. But you see, it can't just be a superficial connection or else it's not human flourishing. It has to be that you have deep spiritual friendships. And sometimes in American culture, what we have is kind of consumer church. So if you like the preaching at one place or you like the music at one place or you like the programs at one place, that, those, that becomes your church. But that's not really the church. That's in a, in a way, the visible church, you know, the organized church, but it's not the invisible church. Uh, the real church is where you truly are connected, friendships, spiritual relationships, where you go below the surface, where there begins to be in relationship with others a reflection of your relationship with Christ who knows you all the way to the bottom, but loves you all the way to the top. Who knows how, how, how desperately evil you are and chose, you know, and, and had to die for you, but knows how deeply loved you are and chose to die for you. This, is, this has always been fascinating to me how superficial, how consumer-oriented the church is. And as soon as something doesn't, you know, doesn't fit, something about the church isn't serviceable anymore, or there's a dispute, or there's some problem, people just disappear. Now, they can do that, and we, we live in a free society to do that. That's not the issue. The issue is, do we really understand the church? Do we understand that the people that we are bitter with or unforgiving with are people that we're possibly going to spend eternity with who are our forever family, and we're not really getting it right here on earth. So in Ephesians 3, verse 10, here's what F.F. F. Bruce has to say. He says, The church 
in Ephesians appears as God's pilot plant for the reconciled universe of the future. The church is to be a new society where the world can see what family life, what business practices, what race relationships, what all of life will be under the healing kingship of Jesus Christ. I'll give you an example of what I think this means. When, when Jesus heals the sick, Jesus isn't doing like some, he isn't suspending the natural order to heal people. He's restoring the natural order. You see, death is the, death is the unwelcome presence here. Sin is the unwelcome presence. Though, though we have lived our whole lives in a world of sin and death, which includes sickness and disease and all of these things, they're not normal. Uh, they're to be fought against. They're to be cursed because they are the curse. Just as Jesus said to the fig tree, wither up and die, so we should say to cancer, wither up and die. Um, Jesus wasn't, you know, wasn't, he, he wasn't changing and suspending what is natural and normal. He was actually restoring. And so when the church is actually being the church, we're not... You know, we're not establishing some kind of new norm. We're restoring the original design of relationships, of, of uh, stewardship, all of these kind of things. See, our purpose in being the church is bigger than just kind of surviving this earth. It's reversing the curse. It's restoring what was lost. And giving the world a place where they can see God's plan, God's wisdom, God's glory. So the interesting thing is that Paul says that it is done in the presence of principalities and powers in front of the whole heavenly realm. So one of the reasons why it's really hard to be this brilliant church or this glorious church is because we are right smack dab in the middle of the warfare realm. That's what the heavenly realm is. That's, that's what Paul refers to as the place of the battles between angels and demons. And we are in the middle of that. You know, We don't live in a separated world from the spiritual realm. We live in a world that's still affected by the angelic realm, both the fallen angels and the elect angels, as the scripture says. So we don't just show the world the glory of God. We don't just show the world the gospel of Jesus Christ, but we are actually engaged in a battle, a spiritual battle of monumental proportions. So Paul, you know, Paul's not saying, <laughs> Paul's not saying, hey, the church is glorious when it's not messy. Paul is kind of saying the messiness of the church, the honesty of the church, the difficulties of the church are a part of the plan of God to reveal the wisdom of God. And this is really what he's saying, and this this may not be that easy for many of us, but you can't find your deepest meaning as a believer, and you'll never experience your fullest capacity until you really, until you lean into the church. You know, Paul calls the church the, the manifold wisdom of God. This is the multicolored brilliance of the church. That's why when, 
when cultures come together, when races come together, when there's uh, age diversity, when there's, there's um, particularly when there's the restoration of equality and love between the genders, when, when all of these things are functioning like they will function in heaven, but they're functioning here on earth, then the church becomes the, the expression of the manifold wisdom of God. And this is the place where the world needs to see, needs to see the church being the church. But all of it starts when you individually start to say, well, the gospel has changed my life. The gospel has changed my connections. The gospel has changed my allegiances in many ways. So that I'm not just, I'm not just connected to people who look like me or grew up like me or think like me. I'm now connected to anyone who's connected to Christ. This is why in some ways church splits are, are, are strange and weird in a way. Because even, even if we split from one another over an issue or a, a, a doctrine or whatever it might be, we're still only connected to each other in Jesus. And if, I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer has it right in his book, Life Together, that it's almost better that we, we become disillusioned with each other pretty early. Because there's no, there is no way that any church is going to fit that perfect mold or mindset that we have in our minds because every one of us as believers, we're still in development. And it's interesting, again, we want God to deal with us according to grace, but we don't want to deal with each other according to grace. And yet Paul is, Paul is talking about how that what makes the beauty of the church, the brilliance of the church, is not that we follow the law, not that we perform perfectly the moral and everything that's fair and right and deserving, all this kind of stuff. But again, the beauty of the church is the mystery of grace being, being seen and experienced as we have fellowship and relationship with each other. That, that instead of dealing with people according to their behavior, instead of dealing with people according to their social stra- uh, status or whatever it might be, we deal with people in the same way Christ has de- dealt with us by grace. And we particularly see, even though we may have difficulties with one another, I'm connected to you because you're connected to Christ. You're connected to me, no matter what, because you're connected to Christ and I'm connected to Christ. And the basis of our friendship is not our affinity for one another or what you can do for me or even how you make me feel. The basis is that you're in Christ and I am in Christ and we are now a people of grace. We're a people of grace, not a people of law, not a people of... Now, <laughs> don't, don't get me wrong. The Bible's really clear that we're to be honest and truthful about behavior, but we're to do it not because you annoy me or not because you hurt my feelings. We're to speak, Paul said, we're to speak the truth in love. So even when I'm speaking truth, I'm being loving. I'm doing it for the other person's good as well as my own, perhaps. Uh, one, one writer says this way, if you don't speak the truth in tears, you're not really speaking the truth. And if there's no truth in your tears, then you're not really speaking love. It's just sentiment. So we have a long way to go, 
But Paul gives us in this Ephesians chapter 3 and then passing on into chapter 4, he begins to explain to you and me how we become this, this church. Ephesians 4 is probably the great, one of the greatest passages on the Holy Spirit's vision for the church, which is Jesus' vision for the church. Um, can I just say what this means in a, in, in a summary, in a way? Your life now in Christ and how you relate to other believers, this is God's plan to show the world His wisdom. Paul says this is one of the purposes of your life. He is resetting by the church the original purpose of his creation. And he wants it to be seen in the church. And he wants the wonder of grace to be demonstrated in your life and in your relationships in such a way that the world can see, even the demonic realm. Even though this is spiritual warfare, even though this is the battle realm of the heavenlies, he doesn't want you to lose heart. But he wants you to have deep purpose and deep connection. God is in the business of change, and He's placed us in a community of change. Change in the Bible is never a solo project. Change is always a community project. So here in Ephesians 4, we get a little glimpse of what the Spirit's curriculum is for you, what's happening, and what what is being formed in you by your connection to the community. In verse 12 of Ephesians 4, it says, everything that God is doing is so that you will get into the work of ministry. But the work of the ministry that he primarily has you in place for, it says, is for the building up of the body of Christ. And, And the Holy Spirit's purpose is this, is that we all attain... All of us, listen to this, we all attain to the unity of faith and to the knowledge of God, of the Son of God, to mature manhood or personhood, so that you come to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Do you understand? Everything in the Holy Spirit, you don't have to ask Him to do this, you just have to respond and say yes, because He's doing this. He's trying to align you for your assignment, which is ministry, to minister, to serve. This is an interesting thing. I always, you know, uh, work with young, have worked with young people preparing them for ministry. And they're all like, I want to do this and I want to do that. And I'm always like, you know, the first thing you have to do is you have to learn to serve people. You serve God by serving others. And if there's a need, you serve that need. Yeah, but that's, you know, it's not my gift. That doesn't matter. If there's a need, you serve. And then that, you see, begins to work this building up of the body of Christ. And, and, and you become a, a part of all of us attaining to the unity of faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to where the church itself it becomes mature. See, it's never simply saying you become mature. It's saying the whole of the church is to become mature and you're a part of that. Listen to what Tim Chester says. When Paul talks about becoming mature... He's talking about the body of Christ as a whole. It's the Christian community together that displays God's wisdom. We make God known not just as individuals, but through our life together and our love for one another. Our aim is to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. 
So your call is not merely to conform your own personal life to the image of Christ, but your life is to aid and assist the conformity of the whole body to Christ himself. You cannot be the body of Christ on your own. You can't be mature on your own. Now, this is an interesting quote here from Tim Chester. Your individual sin, even the private ones, has an effect on the community. If you are not mature, then the body is not mature. An explanation of the effect of your sin. Your sin stops you from playing the role God intends for you in the way that God prescribes your role to be played. Your inability to play your role means the church doesn't grow and that it doesn't reflect its head. Change is important for you personally, yes. But the Bible says that your personal change and your cooperation with the Holy Spirit who is the agent and the power of your change, that that, that cooperation has a much farther reach a farther reaching effect than just to make you a better person. Every step you take in conformity to the image of Christ moves his church closer to full stature and maturity. Change is not only a community project, but real change is a community process. And if you don't freely enter into the process, find your meaning in the process, and then find your connection with the community as the process, then the church itself is not moving closer to maturity. Now, we can complain about the church, we can, you know, we can critique the church, but if we're not moving ourselves towards maturity, then the church itself is not moving towards maturity. Paul is saying that the steps you take, the change project that you take, is just that important. Your maturity is really affecting our maturity. You're that important. So you can see how Paul is teaching how to flourish, but in order for you to flourish, you have to freely choose in. Now, you can always freely choose out. That's what bitterness, critical spirit, that's what anger, that's what you know, nursing your grudges and hurts will do. It will keep you from freedom, which will keep you from flourishing. And if all you ever do is criticize, be bitter, and everything about, about the church itself, you won't find meaning in the messiness. There's incredible meaning in the messiness, friends. We're not just, you know, we're not just before a watching world. We're in the battle realm of the heavenlies. This is a big deal. And if the connection you have is not a deep friendship, spiritual friendships, then it's not really the church. So the steps you're taking in this change project have to be community, both in project and in process. It's that important. 